Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a new fighter in the battle for speed in the Pentagon. I'm excited about the new Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, Dr. Bill LaPlante. Um, he's just uh, confirmed and sworn in back in April. I think he understands this and he will tackle this problem. The personnel challenge for DOD's network of tomorrow. We have to have the experts we need, and we need to have a combined capability of both government and commercial fully integrated so that it can operate across it seamlessly. And advice for tech leaders to keep the people they need engaged. We have to make it, frankly, fun. Right? That's why we call ourselves hackers. That's why we're really pushing for folks to tinker and to try minimum viable product type approaches. It's Thursday, May 5th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The chief information officer at the National Archives is retiring. The agency says Swarnali Haldar will retire from government service at the end of July. She's been CIO at NARA since 2014. She was deputy CIO before that. The National Artificial Intelligence Advisory Committee will focus its work in five areas of AI. The chair of the committee, Miriam Vogel, says the five areas will include research and development and trustworthy AI. The committee includes members from industry, academia, and nonprofits. It's based in the Commerce Department. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Voting's open now for the best bosses in federal IT. You can vote for the best bosses till May 20th, and you can find a link to see the nominees and vote for them in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The defense acquisition process needs more attention when it gets things right. That was one message the Senate Armed Services Committee heard recently. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. He's former assistant secretary of defense for logistics and materiel readiness, and he was one of the witnesses delivering that message to the Senate Armed Services Committee. David, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Why was that message so important for you to drill into in front of the SASC? Welcome. Uh, thank you, Francis, for having me on and, and for particularly for focusing uh, on this important issue. As you know, the vast majority of the stories that come out in the media from the Government Accountability Office, from the inspector generals across the agencies are stories about things that are not going right. right? That's, uh, that's not just true in defense acquisition. It's true in an awful lot of our society. But the truth of the matter is that we do have a federal acquisition process that often gets it right, that does deliver to the government the services and the products and the capability and the capacity that they need. And we don't talk about those success stories very often. So if you're part of the general public, or even if you're part of the attention-paying members of Congress for whom this is in your jurisdiction of your committee, you spend most of your time focusing on the negative. I think it's critical for the workforce, for the agencies, for America to understand we get it right a lot of the times. It's hard to find those success stories, though, and bring them to light, isn't it? You talked about, in that context, the the term middle-tier acquisition authority, and your, your cohort, your colleague on the committee, your fellow witness, was Ellen Lord, the former AT&L and then ANS uh, at uh, the Defense Department. And you both talked about middle-tier acquisition. You cited the example of the new Army rifle. It happened in two years from requirement to contract award. That's a record for the department. But as you talked about that story, I went back to comments that the now chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, made 
I think it was at your former organization, CSIS, a number of years ago, when he talked about the length of time the Army took to procure a pistol. And he said, it's a pistol. Give me X number of examples and a couple hours, and I'll, have the, and I'll be able to tell you the best one. What do you see as the possibility for the defense industrial base to help squeeze those timelines even shorter, whether it's through a concept like middle-tier acquisition or something else? Uh, I thank you for bringing up the pistol because that was in my mind as I was pointing out the uh, the, the the new rifle, the squad assault weapon. Uh, but I didn't mention it in the in the hearing testimony, and that took something like nine years to go from initial requirements until they finally made a selection. Uh, and I think that that the middle tier acquisition is actually a set of procedures that were provided by Congress in the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, oh, probably five or six years ago now. So it isn't really the size of the company. It's the acquisition process itself. It allows the government to bypass some of the burdensome steps that add time and not much value to the end result. So it's really a set of processes that were brought into play. I'm afraid that wasn't uh, well articulated when it came up before the committee. We'll follow up with them and make sure they understand that. Um, but the, uh, it was the, that, those processes were not available to the Army statutorily as they went through the pistol evaluation process. Oftentimes, the real problem is at the front end requirements that can't be met by anybody with existing capacity and capability today or existing technology today. And therefore, it becomes much more difficult to do what General Milley implied. Give me the gun, let me shoot it, and I'll figure out what to do. If the gun doesn't exist yet because you want it to do things that no existing gun can do, that's the problem. All right. That is what adds the land. All right. The Internet's a wonderful thing, and I need to correct the fact that it was at New America. It was not at, at uh, CSIS. But this is what he said. We're not figuring out the next lunar landing. In 2016, he was talking about this. This is a pistol. Two years to test, question mark, at 17 million, question mark. You give me 17 million on a credit card, and I'll call Cabela's tonight, and I'll outfit every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine with a pistol for 17 million dollars, and I'll get a discount on a bulk buy. That sounds to me, David, like what we should aspire to, and what should be uh, industry's goal, and not just with pistols, with technology, with weapon systems, with software, with just about everything to get us to that. How much progress do you think we've made since 2016? on getting to that point. That was eight years ago now. No, six years, years ago. ago. Six years right. ago. My, I'm doing, not a math major. <laughs> doing math in your head is always dangerous. Oh, so. uh, but but uh, uh, Francis, I think the, the, the reality is that we do need faster processes, both before the solicitation as the requirements are being set. And this is true for both products and services in terms of, of what the government buys. For more speed in the process between solicitation and award, and that gets you to the point where you're actually delivering and, and performing. This was something that uh, Secretary Lord and I emphasized over and over again in the course of the hearing is time is not on our side, right? E either in terms of responding to the challenges that we face, whether it's in Eastern Europe, whether it's in the Pacific, or whether it's right home here in America, uh, uh, you know, managing the, managing the government. Um, but the second reality, and I brought this up in the hearing, is that based upon the data that we can see that the Pentagon reports Procurement lead time is getting longer, not shorter. In fact, I believe that my old stomping grounds, the Center for Strategic International Studies, is about to release a report at an acquisition research symposium next week, um, which will show that the, their extraction of the data that the Pentagon is collecting um, shows that for contracts under $1 million, we're going faster. 
but for almost everything else, we're going slower. By the way, that requirement for the government to define, measure, and make available procurement lead time is something that PSC got on the record in the FY18 National Defense Authorization Act for DOD, and then in the FY19 Authorization Act for the rest of government, because you can't fix procurement lead time problems unless you know what they are, and you actually have an ability to track them. So we've made some real progress there in in terms of getting the starting point in place. We don't actually know how well they're doing. That's just the data that uh, CSIS is, is going to be releasing. But what we what we need is the leadership to focus on this. I'm excited about the new Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, Dr. Bill LaPlante. Um, he's just uh, confirmed and sworn in back in April. I think he understands this and he will tackle this problem. And I think some of the folks like uh, Andrew Hunter, who's now the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition, he used to actually run that research at CSIS. And so he's familiar with this as well. If we want to add speed to the process, we have to measure what we're doing and get it accelerated. You used a term there that I key on every time somebody says it because it, it perks my ears up in Washington. Based on the data we can see, is there potentially data that right now we can't see? And I'm not suggesting that if there is, that it's nefarious, that anybody's concealing anything, whatever. It's just I'm, I'm sure there's a ton of it, and I wonder what level and what proficiency of data curation we're doing right now on, on this and many other areas. So to me, there are three key points of this procurement lead time, right? The middle part, which is solicitation to award, is what we think we're me- is being measured and, and which if we dig deep enough into the data systems, we can find out. There are two other elements. So the pre-solicitation part, which is where a lot of time is spent before the solicitation is, is issued. You can just look at recent examples you've covered in your show of uh, uh, government-wide acquisition contracts that or the or postponed over and over again before the the, the solicitation is finally released. Yep. And then there's the post-award part before you actually start work. Much of that is taken up by protests, obviously, either through the GAO agency-level protests or through the uh, Court of Federal Claims and uh, uh, contract claims. And so I think that uh, the, there are three elements there, and we're probably only only have visibility into the middle one. We would really need to see all three in order to both know how big the problem is, know where the solutions need to be applied, and then be able to create and and, uh, implement those solutions so that we do reduce the amount of time. It costs money. It costs a huge amount of money for the companies. And I think it costs money and time for the government. It's just the government doesn't collect data on the cost of their own performance. All right. Uh, That data question came up in an answer that you gave to Senator Gillibrand about speed. She said, what could we change or reform or whatever to promote speed? And you talked about that data to just to be able to know what you have to measure. Um, and you said, we need to be able to do it, not just for ad speed, not just for a few, but for everything. Other transactions is very useful as far as it goes, but if you can do it for some, you really need to be able to do it for all. We're, what's the biggest part of all right now where a difference could really be made quickly, David? I think that the biggest part of all that the difference we could see it quickly is in the services contracts arena. You know, DOD does over $400 billion a year in, in uh, federal contracts, and, and approximately half of that is in services. So slightly over $200 billion a year are in services going forward. Um, to be able to get 
what we need in terms of support for the missions and the functions of the department, not just for DOD, but really across the federal government uh, in a more timely way is really a critical factor, particularly since we're trying to demonstrate that the government can actually function and operate efficiently and effectively, which I think is the key to restoring trust in government across America, which I think you and I would agree we desperately need. David Berteau, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, sir. You can find a link to the hearing Dave testified at in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Navy will test a concept called expeditionary advanced base operations as a deterrent to future conflict. If it works, that concept could plug into the services project overmatch. Rear Admiral Jamie Barnett, U.S. Navy retired, is vice president of Global Communication Solutions Viasat. He's former deputy commander of the Navy Expeditionary Combat Command. Jamie, welcome. It's great to see you again. It's been a while. I'm glad we have a chance to get back together. What is the concept of expeditionary advanced base operations, and why is there a little bit of buzz or controversy around it? Welcome. Well, Francis, uh, first, thanks for having me, and and congratulations on the daily daily scoop. I uh, really enjoy listening to it. So, uh, expeditionary advanced space operations is a future naval, and when I say naval, both uh, Navy and Marine Corps uh, operational concept, and it's it's really based on the fact that things have changed uh, over the last thirty years. America may you know ha- have this feeling that you know, we're the dominant power in the world. The military has been keeping an eye on that. And actually, the fact of the matter is, is that the things that gave us that security over the last 30 years, which is sea control, air superiority, and assured communications have been eroded by, you know, things that we used to call near-peer, but now peer competitors. So the Expeditionary Advanced Based Operations, this concept is to have forces that are not fixed in a, in a particular base that can be attacked, you know, it's within, you know, but to have a lot of maneuverable, low signature, uh, smaller forces that can operate inside the the enemy's weapons uh, engagement zone, you know, have various capabilities, uh, but not be so fixed. So it's very much focused on uh, part of the the JADC2, so the Joint All-Domain Command and Control, to make sure that you can target and strike naval and air forces. Uh, and the controversy, I suppose, is that it is future. We haven't done it this way in the past. We've, we've always had you know, huge bases forward and always thought that that would be a, enough. This is a new concept. Uh, it's still being tried out, but it is being implemented now. You talked about this at uh, Sea Airspace. You were on a panel with Major General Ben Watson, the Commanding General of Marine Corps Warfighting Laboratory, talking about this. And he said this is a concept, because it's not proven yet, that will be repeat, uh, tested repeatedly and in increasing detail in the future. What do you think that testing should look like? What should the Navy Marine Corps be testing for, Jamie? So we will do this through exercises, and of course, we'll you know continually compare this to the intelligence that we have on adversary uh, capabilities. It'll be integrated uh, as we we implement JAD C two, uh, and so you know we this is what the military does. We plan, we exercise, we continually test, and we've done we've done well at the past. But as you know, there you have to make adjustments, and so we'll see how this works out. But I will say this: so I believe the first Marine littoral um, regiment was implemented just in March of this year. 
So we are proceeding to do it. Those things will be exercised and tested out. How much of the controversy do you think around concepts like Ebo come from the fact that they are integrated elements of General Berger's Force Design 2030? That we talked about on this program. I talked about with General Berger at Sea Air Space on the Chiefs panel about what's going on kind of in the Marine community about what that looks like and the impact it'll have on the force. There's a cohort of, of Marines and retired Marines that don't think it's such a great idea. Yeah, that force, force design 2030 is, is a, is a big change. So, you know, getting rid of some of the tanks, uh, getting rid of some of the other capabilities to try and focus on this highly maneuverable force, uh, you know, and, and these units that will be inside the, the, you know, they talk about the inside force and the outside forces, the outside being outside the weapons engagement zone. Those, those units will not have everything they need. They will have some capabilities, and that's some, where some of the controversy is. And the idea is to harass and stop the enemy's uh, capabilities until the main force can arrive. So, uh, you know, Force Design uh, 2030 is very much aim, aimed at that. And uh, to try and do that, and that, as a matter of fact, the, the Marine Littoral Combat um, Regiment it is where that came from, is from uh, 2030. What, did, what do you think has to happen next for this to be successful, for this to work? You talked about the testing that's involved. That's fine. But what are the markers, specific markers that you expect to see moving forward? Well, one of the things that, and of course, you know, Visat is a, is a worldwide satellite company. So, so obviously, and we, we provide about, uh, you know, half of our revenue comes from the government, half from uh, civilian. So you know, we're really keeping an idea on how you, how you communicate in, in a contested environment, the littoral operations in the contested environment. And so you've got these dispersed forces. They're disadvantaged because maybe they don't have everything they need to do. They're low signature. You have to connect them, you know, with very resilient, uh, redundant communications. The, you know, so our, our president, uh, Craig Miller, has said that, you know, hey, hypersonic missiles are fast. And that's one of the reasons why we've come up with all these things. But you know something faster than that? Data. And so the ability to gather data from our sensors, uh, trade it around the entire environment to make sure everybody has the common operating um, uh, picture, target the enemy and do it. That will be the advantage. And so uh, what I'm looking at is, as JADC2 and uh, Project Overmatch with the Navy goes forward is how do we make sure that we combine the trip? <laughs> Francis, we have one really big advantage over anybody else. So the government used to be the major investor in you know uh, technology and development and research. Well, now it's 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 industry, and so you know my company's putting you know billions of dollars into new you know highly capable satellite systems. But so are our competitors. The government can take advantage of billions of dollars in that, and so that's one of the things we're watching. By the way, I I noticed that. Uh, uh, the, the Navy has uh, greatly increased its funding for overmatch. They're trying to really speed that up. So communications, you know, 5G, we're very much into that. All of these things, these enablers are, are what will make EABO and, and quite frankly, the whole JADC2 uh, uh, concept work.
All right, you've used you've used the term low signature a couple of times already in this conversation, Jamie, and that signals to me if I read between the lines that security of the transition of information in this system and other systems is going to be tremendously important. What's that security profile need to look like in order to maintain that low signature in a secure way? Just like uh, our our physical forces, our communications and cyber forces have to be in depth. They have to be redundant. Uh, we have really secure systems. Uh, Viaset is one of the, the major producers of uh, NSA Type 1 encryption. But, you know, you, you know, we know that this is going to be, uh, our communication systems are going to be attacked. And so you have to be able to communicate over multiple systems. So government satellite uh, and our, our commercial satellites, line of sight, we have to be able to operate off the grid sometimes too. So being able to compute and do data at the at the edge is going to be really important too. But you know, this is when they say joint all domain, one of those domains is cyber. And so we have to make sure that we're strong on that. We're making huge investments in it. What's the infrastructure that the department needs that the military broadly needs to have in place besides the satellite capability in order for all of this to be successful? When you look at the, the JADC2 and the Project Overmatch in particular, I mean, there you can see where the investments are going. And so, uh, you know, one of these is technology. Uh, one of them is the ability to handle data. One of them is actually people. So I'm going to include that in the infrastructure as well. We have to have the experts we need. And we need to have a combined capability of both government and commercial fully integrated so that it can operate across it seamlessly. You know, when you use your cell phone, you know, your phone switches between Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, 5G, satellite, anything like that. We need, to, we need to be able to have that same thing for our forces. Jamie Barnett, great to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Great, Francis. Thanks so much. You can read more about EADO in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Coming on Friday, the debut of a new Friday feature on the Daily Scoop podcast, two experts in the federal government community will choose what they think are the three most important federal news stories of the week. The Friday FedScoop News Countdown debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Defense Department's biggest cloud acquisitions will come from more than one vendor. The biggest example of that is the end of the JEDI contract and the transition to the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability contract. Sharon Woods is Executive Director for the Cloud Computing Program Office at the Defense Information Systems Agency. She tells my FedScoop colleague Billy Mitchell one value from a multi-cloud environment for DISA is how it can meet the diverse missions of the department. There is no one-size-fits-all. There is no single solution that could possibly meet all of those requirements. So when it comes to multi-cloud, the key there is optionality. So the hosting and compute center, you know, we're working very hard to get the joint warfighting cloud capability in place. And one of the key differentiators with that acquisition is that it is multi-vendor. And one of the key reasons is because of the diversity of the mission. So if we're going to meet the needs of the entire department, we have to have multiple clouds in place. So how do you see public sector agencies taking more innovative approaches to cybersecurity and data protection in 2022? So, you know, folks talk about it a lot, um, but I do think we've made some progress on DevSecOps. So I think, you know, that becomes important on a number of fronts. 
you know, in terms of the security component of this, when you create that pipeline, there have to be security checkpoints so that the security is truly integrated in what is going on. So what results uh, is more predictable and understood, and if you're using a DevSecOps pipeline in the first place, it's a more modern application. So you're able to use that tooling that lets you continuously understand what is happening with that cybersecurity footprint. So it's less of a mystery. And I think demystifying things, having more understanding, and, and not only that, but now authorizing officials can come in, you know, maybe using an API, and they can look too and see what's going on. And that's a completely different relationship with authorizing officials than we have now when we're sort of throwing paperwork over the fence. Obviously, none of this is possible without great, talented personnel doing it. So how do you see digital workforce enablement helping agencies improve how they attract and retain skilled employees? I think it's huge. Uh, and, and one of the pieces of this is we have to retain them. And one of the fears we always have in the federal government is that you know, we have unique mission and unique things that we can teach the workforce. And then we skill them, and sometimes they leave. And I don't think we should be afraid of that, but we have to make it, frankly, fun. Right? That's why we call ourselves hackers. That's why we're really pushing for folks to tinker and to try minimum viable product type approaches where you, you maybe do a small prototype and if we don't like it, we just drop it and try something else. I think when you encourage the workforce to explore things, knowing that it may not work out, that's a really big difference. And then for the hack, it differentiates us from any other kind of agency that maybe isn't taking that approach. So people say sort of, fail fast, I prefer the fail forward mentality. Um, and it's been of great benefit already to the hack. Fantastic, and as we close, let's talk about the pandemic and what's next a little bit. Agencies had to move rapidly to acquire novel IT solutions during the pandemic. And I'd love to hear how you see those efforts impacting longer term acquisitions uh, and acquisition reform. Sure, so I'm really proud of what we did because we deployed the commercial virtual remote environment. So that was 365. Uh, at the time, the department did not have an enterprise-wide 365 instance. And so in less than 30 days, we uh, provisioned and deployed over 3 million accounts, which had never been done before. And we were told that's actually the largest tenant in the world, and certainly no one had achieved that timeline. What that did is every single time someone said, it's impossible to move that quickly, we were able to say, yes, it is. And so that changed the conversation that leadership was having. And so actually, I think it helped accelerate the more enduring, permanent you know, Microsoft 365 uh, tenants that we have in place now. So rather than that becoming this you know, elongated multi-effort with COVID, it pressurized everything. It really put leadership in a position where the mission required us to move fast. It let us deploy CVR in less than 30 days. It broke that perspective that it's impossible to move that quick. And so that just became the fuel uh, to really drive forward the more enduring 365 solutions. And that was not the only space where those kinds of things happened. Um, but I think that's definitely one of the more visible ones. 
Sharon Woods, Executive Director for the Cloud Computing Program Office at the Defense Information Systems Agency with my FedScoop colleague, Billy Mitchell. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. Now, if you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, Leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow afternoon with the debut of the Fed Scoop News Countdown. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.